What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Living Your Life with Leanne Lang. I often miss the one-on-one interaction being side-by-side with my guests at the Extension Marketing Studios. And yet through COVID, John Milkey from Blast Podcast has been amazing in getting us up and running and technically working with guests from all around the world. And today we are actually crossing oceans again. So adrenal fatigue, it's a buzzword we seem to hear more often than not, and yet it's actually not an accepted medical diagnosis. It's a lay term applied to a collection or a cluster of nonspecific symptoms such as body aches, fatigue, brain fog, nervousness, stress, sleep disturbances, cold hands and feet, digestive problems, and the list goes on. Merrick Doyle, a British functional nutritional therapist, has spent the last 13 years looking through data, patient outcomes, and the disconnect between scientific literature, medical standard of care, and real-life outcomes. This was a personal mission for Merrick, having to face his own metabolic issues as well. Featured in a number of media publications like Men's Health and the Daily Mail, this Londoner, prior to COVID, was a very popular attraction at numerous conferences, including the Health Optimization Summit, in which he spoke about the adrenal immune cycle. I'm really looking forward to hearing about his work, to understand the biochemistry and the personalized approach to each individual and how their body thrives or actually misfires. The mechanisms that link stress, inflammation, and energy, our metabolism, and we're going to get to organic acid testing as well. So we've got a lot to hit on. I'm very excited to welcome in. So Merrick, so great to have you. Nice to have this chat beforehand because we we were chatting about kind of life circumstances before we actually pressed record. We were, so. <laughs> yeah. Hard not to uh, acknowledge the uh, unprecedented changes just wanted to get that word in right from the start. Yeah, it's been it's been very surreal. How how is it that you've been coping? I mean, it's interesting because right before all of this, I mean, you've been talking on stages and really kind of spreading this word, and then all of a sudden, it's like everything just presses pause, and it's like, where do we go from here? Well, yeah, and I think that was the question that bewildered me for the first week or so, and uh, yeah, me and my wife, we had our I'll sit down after a couple of days and thought, right, okay, let's work out our mutual operating manuals here during lockdown. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a good chat to have then. And since then, it's it's been surreal. And it's, for me, I've felt um, a number of cycles, um, certain cycles of, of peaceful acceptance of it all. And thinking, you know what? this sort of rhythm I'm getting into, I can come to terms with this. I'm, I love my garden office where I'm sitting in now. I like where I'm living and just very aware of all of the things that have made this bearable for me and uh, things that a lot of people haven't had the benefit of. Uh, but that's not to say there hasn't been the other dips in that cycle where it has just felt a bit, a bit weird and my lack of freedom and I've been forced to sit with a sense of powerlessness which it turns out isn't uh, isn't one of my strong suits so <laughs> so yeah th- those cycles have played out but here we are 
Things you know, like when I look at the cycles and what it is that you do and where your focus in terms of the work that you do lies, it's interesting because I have so many people listening right now, especially to this podcast, because it's health and wellness based. And for those that are using this time to try to figure out themselves, try to figure out their health, trying to figure out where things were working and where they're not. And maybe now that they don't have the crazy stress or the commutes and things from work, they're realizing other things are actually happening with their bodies. I find people are actually trying to figure things out. And is this almost like a good time as we're going to get into the whole topic of adrenal fatigue, that, that it's a great time for people to maybe stop and think, where am I at? What am I sitting with? What has my body been doing? And let's, how do we move forward? Well, yeah, it's been so fascinating to, to speak to the individuals that I'm often speaking to in what we'd call normal circumstances and to hear their experiences of this unusual time. And obviously, I'm yeah very aware that there's certain people, if you're living in a flat with children, this is a totally different scenario and that phrase we may all be facing the same conditions we may be facing the same storm but we are not all in the same boat that feels like it rings true but it is also fair that most people have explained to me how they have had more time and they have had this this episode of sitting with themselves in a way that their prior schedule didn't permit. And that's obviously been a real interesting thing as to, well, what do we do with that? And yeah, how can we best use it? And yeah, what happens when we're not rushing and stressing and pushing ourselves to the limit? That's been a question we've just started to flirt with answers. Well, and that's where I think I'm I'm so keen on hitting on because usually when we would refer to that adrenal fatigue, you know, and people are talking constantly of being just exhausted and getting up and uh, feeling fatigued all day, not having this sleep. Can I, can I ask you where you see the definition or the concept of adrenal fatigue and how you see it fitting into things? Well, yeah. So as I've spoken about on a number of occasions, this term adrenal fatigue never sat well with me. And primarily because it's a bit of a throwaway term for one and primarily because it never captures what's truly going on for that individual. Its meaning for different people is going to vary so greatly, which is where it is a very, very flawed term. And instead, I would prefer to look at um, the more nuanced picture of how might someone's adrenal health be affecting their day-to-day life? Uh, how might it be limiting their options and, and their access to joy and contentment? And how many compensatory steps do they need to take every day in order to overcome these challenges that are are placed upon them due to metabolic limitations? Uh, So in that sense, yeah, I would look at it more 
as less of a black, less of a black and white thing, and more as a case of at what point does hormonal health begin to to invade your fair chance of uh, having a enjoyable life? That's probably the best framing that I could put of it that would would characterize how I look at it in regards to adrenal health and when is it necessary for us to sit down and investigate and start resolving things. Now, I mentioned right off the top, it's not actually a medical diagnosis. So, and it, but yet it's something that we constantly hear of. So mm-hmm. why is that? How, where's the disconnect there? Or why, why is it not really mentioned in that way in the medical journals? So yeah, it's a whistle-stop tour of uh, adrenal fatigue history. So in 1992, a doctor called Dr. James Wilson, uh, who's an American, he released a book called Adrenal Fatigue, 21st Century Stress Syndrome. And it described a cluster of symptoms that he was seeing regularly in clinic and also a protocol that was helping them. Um, and the protocol centered on steps to support adrenal response, but equally lifestyle changes to reduce the load on the adrenals. And consequently, it was rather logical that he and anybody else could come to the same conclusion that, well, the adrenals clearly aren't doing what they should do, it's causing fatigue, and thus the term adrenal fatigue is born. Now, over the years that have followed, and that's quite a few years, it's been fascinating to see how there's been so many people who have naturally read this material or or other people's interpretation of this material uh, and have instantly resonated with these symptoms, the struggling to get going in the morning, the, the dips of energy in the afternoon, but then coming to life in the evening time. And maybe this is this short window of feeling normal but on top of that there's that that snappiness the over response to to noises and people walk up behind them and they flinch and there's the huge agitation and the difficulty in going several hours between meals the the dizziness upon standing and other blood pressure issues and so on and so forth and there's just so many Uh, subtle ways that it impacts on the rest of the metabolism as well. So when this is captured in a list of symptoms and it's also framed in a way that links it to the lifestyle, you end up with this huge amount of people reading that thinking, that's entirely me. So of course, it's got a huge uh, leverage. It's got this huge connection with a growing audience and naturally these individuals apply the recommendations that are given to them they they remove the lifestyle stress they look at the nutritional support and a lot of them see dramatic shifts in their health so there we can see why the idea becomes so pervasive we can see why the label becomes so popular But equally, at the same time, you've got doctors who very rightfully are saying adrenal glands can't just break. Um, There's no way that this idea in its current form is correct. 
And unfortunately, rather than there being a uh, comprehensive discussion and a breakdown of, well, what's going on? Why are these people improving from undertaking such a protocol? It seemed the focus centred on demonstrating that it wasn't a thing and pushing back and, and telling patients that you need to stop reading what you're reading and you need to start listening to the health professionals it's not a thing and there was even a um, medical journal uh, article published that proved that adrenal fatigue wasn't a thing and the way they proved it is by doing a literature search for adrenal fatigue which of course is a totally pointless exercise it's much like doing a literature search for tummy ache of course you'll not see any papers based on this and so they they did this 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 search if we can call it that the sham of a search and then surprise surprise concluded there we go we proved it's not a thing um but it is fair to say that the physiological explanations given for adrenal fatigue never made any sense and they definitely were not backed by science. So this is where the conflict began. You had all these people saying, well, you're telling me it's wrong, and yet it's working. And then, of course, the, the scientists are saying, but it doesn't make any sense. And that's obviously where my uh, quest to unpack what's truly going on and the actual physiological differences, and of course, what interventions are therefore called for. That's obviously where my, my quest began. Right. And you talk about this protocol. And I think that's where we're going to be taking this conversation because you talk about this protocol that people seem to be implementing. So this is kind of where your work seems to be going. But if I was reading correctly, this was something that you had to come to for your own sense, for your own body, for your own health too. Is it not? Very much so, yeah. So back in 2007, I was already a nutritional therapist and at the time I was pretty content with how things were going and especially content with my prowess in dealing with uh, what was in front of me. And uh, yeah, that reality was shattered quite quickly as and when after, yes, starting up a new business and uh yeah taking on appointments at times and potentially i should have been resting and uh yeah essentially living my life on the basis that i was immune from stress which yeah i would i would love to have that cloak of invulnerability uh, once in a while again but uh yeah i was also training to compete uh, in muay thai kickboxing um and yeah one evening I picked up a relatively trivial injury uh, to my ear. Next morning, woke up and I was weak, out and out weak. And uh, so, yeah, so my experience is then not only in regards to what this had done um, and, and how it had affected me, um, but also the fact I didn't have answers. I visited a doctor and was refused all the tests that I had mentioned on the basis that I looked so healthy. Um, and that did, for the first time, force me to start taking some deep dives into the human metabolism, hormonal health, what's going on here. And uh, yeah, that's where, after a few blind alleyways, I 
undertook an adrenal stress profile and saw that there was something way off with my adrenals, took some steps to support them and suddenly I was feeling normal and good again and that was uh, obviously something that left me with a legacy. Um, I was now able to see signs of adrenal issues in individuals that previously I was blind to and obviously huge help for me professionally to do so. Um, although it's fair to say that uh, uh, later on, a few years later, I uh, was then uh, subject to another metabolic crash. Uh, this time uh, I had two hits on my spine in the same week and was living in a mouldy flat and uh, yeah, which then throw me into a, another loop, but much more jarring in the sense that the initial uh, simplicity through which I had viewed hormonal issues, well, yeah, they were they were demonstrated to be insufficient when things got much more complicated, when there was other factors in play. And so, yeah, it, it forced me to really question this whole <laughs> complex thing we call the human body. It's funny that you mentioned hormonal, you know, it's interesting to hear a man refer to hormonal issues. Mm -hmm. You know, it's typically something that we hear most women talk about, but not coming from the opposite sex. Well, Very well much so. so do you find that that throws people off right off the bat? Honestly, I think that by the time people are in my clinic and are having the chat, they've already gone through the the, the process of what might this be what this won't be and and so in that sense it's a bit of a self-selecting population um that i tend to spend my days uh, speaking with it is very interesting though when i do have you know those chats when i when i leave my office and i put my nutritional therapist hat down and uh, i'm talking socially and people ask me what i do uh, and of course, my business card says nutritional therapist, but my focus is, is so much more on the metabolic pathways and the enzymes, the hormones, the, the neurotransmitters and the nuances of what run this system and impact on outcomes. And, and so, yeah, for those scenarios, it's actually very telling when people often do glaze over pretty quickly because, as you say, it is often considered that, well, well yes, women have hormonal issues. Um, <laughs> they're the ones that, uh, yeah, are, are constantly talking about their hormones, them, uh, <laughs> them lot. And so it is fascinating uh, that, yeah, these hormones affect us all. Obviously, there's half of the population that have an entirely different hormonal uh, baseline, but it's interesting how chaos can occur equally in entirely different ways in yeah, different individuals. So can you take us through then, because you've mentioned a couple things just even in that answer that I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, we got to go back, we got to go back. So take us through what you're referring to exactly when you're talking the adrenals and then what that immune cycle, especially mm -hmm. kind of when you, you encompassed it in this big talk, what that entails. So, and I know that you were mentioned because I'd heard some of the other talks that you'd had, you know, people are coming to you usually after they visited like seven doctors for issues, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like the, this is becomes like that final, that final outreach for them going, it still has, we haven't figured it out. So what are you looking for? What are you testing? How are you switching things? Like, what is that? What is the combination for you? 
Okay, so I'm going to try and condense years of research into about two minutes, and I'm, I'll probably fail <laughs> on that optimistic uh, timescale, but let's see how I go. So right. the adrenals are walnut-sized glands that sit on top of both kidneys, and they are tasked with pumping out the chemicals that help us cope with stress. And I think that's an important distinction to make off the bat, that we're continually uh, told that cortisol is the stress hormone. And I think that's a really unhelpful framing because actually much more fair to say that cortisol is the hormone that helps us cope with stress. So, of course, it's always on the scene of the grime, but it's actually released by the adrenals to help with that and yes it's not not a case that you'd want high cortisol um but instead the case that you want high cortisol during stress that's for sure it's certainly going to help coordinate and regulate an appropriate and adaptive response to the situation you're in so that's the role of the adrenals to coordinate um stresses either at a very background baseline level on day-to-day life and during an acute stressful situation that's when they are tasked with stepping up their output to ensure that you do have the resources to meet whatever threat or perceived threat is in front of you and equally that you have in place the machinery to bring you back to baseline as soon as that's over so Uh, Yes, we could talk about adrenaline driving the actual acute stress reaction and cortisol driving both the coping, the handling of the stress and the returning to the baseline. Um, And both of those emanate from the adrenal glands. Now, what is most important to understand is that whilst there's always more to it than simply just the adrenals, The adrenals are entirely central to our ability to cope with that stress. And so if, A, we just simply ask them to do too much, or B, we aren't able to mount an effective response, or to rephrase, the cells within the adrenal cortex are not able to mount an effective response, or C, a bit of both. In those circumstances, our responses to stress are no longer going to be adaptive. And it's this inability to switch off the stress response that is likely to have catastrophic impact on our metabolism going forward. And the the single biggest threshold that I think really helps to explain the physiology is that during an acute stress response we're not just emptying energy from our muscles and our liver to pour into the bloodstream and and increase available energy to deal with this perceived threat we're also opening up our gut lining and this is a different form of uh, increased intestinal permeability aka leaky gut it's a different mechanism to what we see during inflammation, during allergies, during gluten or ongoing microbial imbalances. That's important too. But what's going on here is not 
gaps are opening between the cells, but the cells themselves induce an opening in uh, the, the, the cell to allow for sugars and salts to rapidly enter the circulation to help with this ongoing stress response and to help meet energy demands for this perceived threat. So that's an effective tool and one that does clearly contribute to increasing energy availability. Lovely. But it comes at a cost. And that cost is that little bits of bacteria, fragments of bacteria called endotoxins, sometimes called lipopolysaccharides, these now move from the gut. They piggyback into the circulation alongside with those sugars and salts. And so having these endotoxins in your gut isn't that much of an issue. Once they're in the bloodstream, well, now here we have non-mammalian DNA segments running around in your circulation. And it's only right in those circumstances, at least from an evolutionary rule point, that your immune system panics and it throws the kitchen sink at its response to make sure that you don't die of sepsis. Um, and so that's how a overly sustained acute stress response or an inability to turn it off as soon as it served its purpose is going to predispose people to these huge ongoing inflammatory reactions. And maybe in somebody who has good inflammatory control and top-notch mitochondrial function, it's not that big a deal. They feel a bit frazzled from that inflammatory cascade. And, and I think that's something that we can all uh, identify with after a very tough day. You get home and you just don't really have much left in you and your partner asks you simple questions and you struggle to form an answer but hey you sleep it off and by the morning things have largely returned to baseline largely but what if there is any difficulties in regulating that stress response I mean, what if there's nutritional shortages that impact on that what if there has been metabolic obstacles uh, that have impacted on that regulation? What if your mitochondria are already flirting with a subdued function and suddenly this huge, massive inflammatory wave, which has massive interactions with the mitochondria, what if that now throws that entire process into disarray? Well, this is, of course, where we now risk getting into a self-perpetuating cycle. Because if you've now got chronic, unregulated inflammation, that's how it can have a huge impact on how reactive your limbic system, the threat detection center of your brain, it's going to be much more active. Its threshold for activation is going to be much lower. Equally, as soon as the energy metabolism is disturbed, well, that in itself has such profound impact on central nervous system function and indeed uh, on, on immune function and the ability of the brain to regulate these stress responses. And suddenly we've got a situation whereby the stress response is either permanently switched on or is 
an inch away from being turned on at all times. And every time it does, the adrenals can't put out that fire. And it spills into further inflammatory stimuli, further inflammatory impacts on the central nervous system, further inflammatory impacts on energy metabolism. And, and we've got this, this cycle is now in full force. And that's the point that I'm tending to see people coming in to see me for the first time, very much in the thick of that cycle. What would be the first questions then when you have people that are coming in? What are your first like five questions to a new client or patient? Well, they can actually vary quite substantially. So the, the issue that I have always tried to overcome, and I feel I've got slightly better at this over the years, is, is to try and work out not what's wrong, but what is currently the rate limiting factor in this person seeing positive improvements? So I should probably mention that the one the one principle that really under underlines what I am aiming to do here is that the body is self-healing, provided there are no obstacles blocking it from doing so. So in that sense, while we do have multiple areas that are going to be affected, because as soon as one of those organ systems falls off, it's automatically going to pull down the others. So in every individual, I'm always expecting to see a huge list of symptoms, clusters relating to central nervous system function, clusters relating to adrenal function and energy metabolism, as I mentioned. But, well, the adrenals have such a, a key relationship with the thyroid, with estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. They have such a massive impact on what's going on at the liver. Cortisol is a neurosteroid and, and masses of impact elsewhere. I mean, there's nowhere that isn't directly or indirectly affected by that but let's take a look at energy metabolism and mitochondrial function every single thing your body does requires energy so if the ability to source that energy is scuppered then of course there's not a single area in the body that isn't going to suffer as a consequence and it's obviously relevant that the areas that use up the most energy that, that have the highest energy demands of course they're going to be affected disproportionately but yeah I, I want to fairly paint the picture of what individuals who first come to see me may be experiencing um, and they often recognize this in the sense that if they read an article about adrenal fatigue they can categorically look at all of those symptoms and say, yep, that's me. But then if they look at this article by the thyroid lady, they're thinking, well, that's me too. But then the gut guy, he's got his checklist of, do you have disturbances in the gut or do you have SIBA? And they're like, well, actually, yeah, that's me too. And, and this is, of course, um, one of the biggest stresses i think for most people that they know they're not right they've spoken to a few people who they know don't get it 
but they're left with this difficult question of, well, what do I do and how how do I proceed from here? Because no matter how you go about it, you're going to have to invest your, your faith, your emotional resources, your time and your money in a practitioner uh, if you want help. What if that practitioner isn't right for you or to to fit it into what really happens in, in most of the spheres in which I operate, whose protocol is going to work for you? And I'm so keen that we move beyond that because I know it sounds like common sense to say it, but if the first 17 protocols didn't work, what makes you think that the 18th is going to be the one? And that's why my focus is less on what's going wrong here of course that's very useful information same with all the symptoms i'm going to place quite a big weight on what symptoms we're getting and in which areas they falling what can we yield from that the focus is, is more what's the rate limiting factor in this person and specifically what is stopping them from having a fair chance of responding to these protocols because I'm looking at their cases, I'm listening to what they've told me, and what they've trialed is totally logical. It's very coherent, well-formulated, highly rated protocols. But if all of them are meeting the same lack of response, well, then we need to look at, well, what's stopping this person from responding? And that is, of course, a question that would be impossible for me to answer from just talking to someone, okay. hence the need for testing, comprehensive case history. Um, I'll, I'll send them a questionnaire beforehand where we start building pictures of symptom clusters. And that combination starts allowing us to form a picture of, okay, here's some obvious obstacles. And that's where we start. Okay. So when you mention the words protocol, like would that be certain medications, change in diet, uh, different mm -hmm. supplements? Like, is, is that what you mean when you refer to protocols? Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, protocols could refer to, right, I'm on a SIBO protocol. So I'm going to avoid all the vegetables that have particular types of fiber that's easily fermented. Um, so that would be a dietary protocol to aim with SIBO. Maybe you would then... Um, you, you would then uh, combine that with antimicrobial herbs to kill off those microbes that are misbehaving. Uh, equally, there could be a, a protocol that's lifestyle focused, that's involving modulation of sleep or, or, or that it's supplement focused. So, right, I'm now I'm doing a mitochondrial protocol. Um, throwing in a cocktail of nutrients that we know and yeah, very well uh, regarded as supporting mitochondrial health. So this is the thing. Um, well, let, let's take that SIBO example. What if your sympathetic nervous system is hijacking your metabolism to the point that it is continually getting you ready to fight or run? Exactly as evolution has trained it to do, given the sensory information it's receiving. Well, in those instances, no way is it going to permit an effective release of bile from the gallbladder. No way is it going to permit an effective release of the pancreatic enzyme. So straight away, the conditions in which you're trying to leverage this war are totally stacked against you.
Added to that, the very well-known changes that occur in immune function. Some parts become much more active. Others, much more involved in finishing the job, become suppressed. Stress will do lots of various important things to the immune system. But again, it leaves these individuals in a scenario where they have no realistic chance of getting to the other side of this protocol with success. But they have very fair chance of getting all the uh, inflammatory symptoms that come alongside these antimicrobial approaches, these cleanses, these detoxes. And it's just such a shame that they will possibly share their experiences with their foreign buddies and are told, brilliant, the fact that you've been lying in bed for four days with a horrendous headache, that's, that's a sign of detox. You clearly needed it. It was clearly overdue. And of course, it's true that there's always going to be some inflammatory processes during the course of a healing journey. But yeah, we, we, we need to be very careful when somebody goes into those processes blind, which of course is, is what's happening on the basis that this protocol is good. Whereas actually the, the, the way I'd like to look at it is, is this protocol uh, going to be effective right now? When is it likely to be good? And that's something that you have. And I know if anyone's coming in to see you, there was something and you'd mentioned the organic acid tests. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what what are these? So yeah, so the organic acids test is something I ask all individuals to take before our first meeting, Uh, mainly because it allows such clarity on a number of matters that otherwise I would be forced into guessing. And you can imagine where that takes us. The organic acid test is a urinary test, single sample, but it provides it with 75 different markers across a whole range of body systems. So we get markers relating to neurotransmitters, to detoxification capacity, to mitochondrial function. We can also see some markers that tell us how well you're handling certain food chemicals, Uh, We can see, are there signs, are there metabolites of undesirable bacteria and yeast to get a glimpse of what's going on in the gut? And yeah, there's also nutritional markers as well. So it's a really good starting point and it allows me to start that investigation knowing that, well, here's some things that we know definitely are an issue. Here's some things that definitely aren't an issue. And here's some things that might be, in which case we're going to look to clarify that further and the the case history and potentially further tests will allow us to do so. But to put it into context, I've been doing this a while and it's not difficult to spot when somebody's mitochondrial function is subpar. But I couldn't for the life of me tell you oh that would be a lack of coq10 and b2 take that ah no you sir you need carnitine and b1 i need to know why these symptoms are occurring and what's behind them rather than simply saying cool you've got the symptoms of low mitochondrial function let's throw a cocktail at you let's throw a mitochondrial protocol at you so 
you know, oftentimes people will go to that doctor, right? And sometimes you get, you know, blood work. Let's, we're going to check for your iron, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's very different tests. And so I, do people need to recognize that there are so many other tests that will recognize so many other things that we just might not know to ask for or to realize that are available? I don't think most people are going into a doctor, you know, to anywhere to, to break it down as much as you're saying when you can find out 75 different factors from that acid test. Well, yeah, and it's a fair thing to say that there are certain tests that people will get regularly in the doctor's office which are really handy and they can shine a light on something really profound and important and actionable. But... There is definitely a tendency to use emergency medicine and to try and somehow crowbar it into a format that can support health. And I think if we took a very brief look at figures for chronic degenerative diseases or diabetes or anything else you want to take a look at, it's quite clear that that doesn't work. And so, yeah, I've had a lot of people over the years come in to say, I'm not really sure if you can help me. I've had every test under the sun and it didn't show everything. And normally they've had a really, really limited uh, number of tests which don't tell us much. And sometimes they've even had tests which show a screaming red flag of an imbalance but it was, oh, it was only a bit outside of the reference range. So the dog said just to ignore it because, hey, um, the, the reference range is meant to differentiate um, 19 out of 20 are in it, one out of 20 aren't. Maybe I'm just special. And I'm thinking, here is this huge screaming red flag that's begging us to investigate. Um, and now it's only in this really basic panel of of blood tests but yeah it, it, it's fair to say that there's never going to be a single test that will uh, tell us everything we need to know and that's why being aware of those limitations is relevant and that's why gathering information and, and doing that thing where you actually listen to the other person on the side of the desk and hear what they're telling you and then thinking okay well clearly you know they have identified key areas, key signs, um, and they're occurring in particular contexts, and that can only be one of several explanations. So that's why I'm going to use the following two tests now to get clarity on that. So yes, the the, the follow-on tests are going to differentiate from one person to the next. Well, that's it. I think people need to realize just how individualized each person's health, their response, how their system reacts to things. And I I think sometimes we tend to generalize, and yet we are uniquely different. Very much so. And I think this is where a lot of the positives um, in scientific development uh, can, can potentially lead us into a really disappointing place in the evidence-based medicine which obviously a phrase that we're hearing more and more often and for good reason evidence-based medicine exists to 
ensure that we have some proof behind any interventions that we don't use leeches and that we don't use witchcraft uh, and so there's a very noble aim behind it but the way that it has drifted is that it gets 168 volunteers um, split in two and half get the placebo half get the intervention and then we look at the average response of that 84 people who took the active uh, drug and then we attempt to produce an average figure and there's this assumption that this average response will apply to everyone because that's what this drug does in this condition in other words duloxetine uh, is x amount effective in depression without ever considering well what if there was a third of the group that responded in an incredibly positive way, a third of the group who are absolutely wrecked by this, and a third that hardly notice a difference. Well, in those instances, that would show, yeah, on average, it does nothing. That is its effect for everybody with this named condition. And that is, is going to limit what we do, and most importantly, that's going to leave a huge amount of people who are not suitable or will respond badly, they're going to be given this as an intervention. And then when they respond badly, something that if we looked hard and characterized and substratified the groups, we could start unpacking who's going to respond badly before it even happens. But instead, they'll just be given the standard intervention and, well, sorry, it didn't work. Well, let's maybe try the next one. What would you consider our standard interventions and what's the difference between your protocol? So it's obviously... Is that fair to ask? Um, <laughs> it's fair to ask whether <laughs> I can answer it is the difference. You know? um, so, yeah, the, the, let's, let's consider this mythical average patient that I see who may well have been seeking for answers for a while uh, often they will have had a, a period of time, maybe months, maybe years, whereby they just didn't quite feel right. But hey, provided they did the exercise at a certain time or provided they had the prescribed number of coffees, uh, provided they just didn't eat that food at lunch and instead focused on, you know, food x y or z provided they make these little alterations and changes and adaptations they're okay and sure they're tired but who isn't i mean it's part of being an adult um and sure it is worse this year and yeah maybe last year's ski trip they really enjoyed and this year was just too much and maybe they are having to alter that but hey they've just moved house Oh, hey, well, it is end of quarter. Well, hey, to be fair, we have been running back in the hospital with, with Auntie Joan. And so we as humans are incredibly skilled at uh, cognitively explaining away these things without ever taking that step back and, and, and saying, OK, well, what's going on? But yes, um, I mentioned that because that's normally an important phase during which people have tried a few things and nothing's worked. And so they thought, well, 
hey, nothing works. And I've actually got 83 emails in my inbox right now. So let's deal with what's important. Then it moves on to a trivial episode, sometimes a really pronounced one, but often it's trivial. And the most common one, of course, is catching a cold or having a virus. And yeah, put them down for a day, but they never got back up. And from that moment on, things were different. There was weight gain. Uh, they didn't have the same clarity of thought. They had to massively alter what they do. They have to either turn down social engagements or sit with the, the guilt and the negativity of, of, of feeling like they're not engaging and so on and so forth. And that's where now action must be taken. And that's where the search begins in earnest. And it will always tend to start at the doctor's. Now, it's definitely true that the, um, the the advice and treatment provided at doctors is definitely going to help a certain number of people. Um, and obviously, I'm never going to see those people because if it works, they get what they want, they feel better, and why would they ever come and see me? So that's why I'm keen that I don't slate in mainstream medicine because that would be a very unfair conclusion to make. But what is fair is that there is a substantial number of patients who are not being given the attention that they need in those scenarios. There is no testing. There's no consideration of what might be playing a role in them. No one's going to their doctor and being asked, what's your sleep like at the moment? Is there any interpersonal stress that you're currently facing? Um, how much have you had to eat today? Um, and I think that even that last question is just so fascinating and much more vital even than just what are you eating? Because the number of individuals that I've seen who are getting by on such few calories a day, but it's been normal for them for so long, either because of a low metabolic rate or because they have such overwhelming discomfort in their gut when they do eat or because they have been told that cutting back on calories will help them lose weight there's a variety of reasons that can happen but yeah often we don't necessarily even look at the basics um it is straight to the prescription pad and so yeah their entire uh, outcome right now is lever is leaning on do they respond well to the drug that they're prescribed which hasn't been uh, customized for them there's been no linking of its mechanism to what they need it's simply been proven through evidence-based medicine that this particular drug can delivers a very successful outcome in a certain percentage of population with this particular named syndrome which even in, in that instance that doesn't actually reflect the experience of that person so that is the limitations um, which I hope I've fairly um, summarized uh, but yes, in terms of my protocol, how would it differ? Well, I guess in many ways, mainly in that I'm asking different questions. Um, as I've mentioned, I, I want to take a look at, well, what obstacles does this person have that's stopping them from responding to the treatment that others are responding to? That's got to be the first question. And that will influence the choice of test, the questions that I ask and yeah, I'm, I'm very clear and anybody who 
gets in touch with me will receive a little mini essay called the new starter guide which just outlines my approach in in greater detail but in essence is that i'm not expecting to solve or fix anything i'm expecting to identify and eliminate obstacles so their body can start solving itself and and that being said i'm equally my first task is to work out what they need and and, and that's more important than trying to generate improvements because i'm not confident of generating improvements till i know what's going on and then we can start to monitor their response to appropriate interventions so yeah it is going to be a more immersive thing it's one that isn't just going to uh, ask them to turn up with their organic acids test and their bullet points of case history yes i need that but equally i'm going to need data from them on an ongoing basis and some of this data is as simple as how did you feel that day but a lot of it is also looking at energy markers, heart rate variability to determine their activation of the sympathetic response. And, and therefore, we, we start to form a relationship over those first few weeks and months between which metrics are, dry, are, are corresponding to improvements and why. How can we exploit that information? Um, and yeah, we will yield the most information of all, not on what the lab tests tell us, but how do they respond to the recommendations I make? Because that's, that's real frontline data that will, you won't get any richer information than that. So to close (laughs) that particular (laughs) uh, question, yeah, it's a case of it is based on using the information, listening to the needs, and continually upregulating the uh, support we're providing in line with what we're being told. And that takes it in a variety of different directions. Okay, so I totally get that. And I think because I know my audience and I know the listeners that they're intrigued by this, but they, you know, I know that you know I, I had on the biology of the brain and talking about the microbiome and how it affects, you know, absolutely ev- everything. So, and from there it was, you know, taking certain foods out or adding certain foods in. So, are, are you under that same when you talk about what you are seeing and changes and questions that day? Is that part of this protocol for you? Well, definitely. Um, so, in that sense, if you know, somebody was to removal sulfurous foods broccoli cauliflower um the the spinach and all the various cruciferous vegetables if they suddenly remove them and then they report that they've just had the best night's sleep they've had in years well we know there's something going on my first question is going to relate to hydrogen sulfide production which is a very under-discussed form of SIBO but one that I see often enough. Uh, but equally, it may well relate to um, poor sulfur metabolism and an increase in sulfites, uh, which not only can 
have a, a very agitating effect on the central nervous system. But it can equally influence uh, inflammatory reactions. It can uh, stop the mitochondria from using amino acids. There's so many ways in which it can manifest. Uh, equally, the relationship between sulfur and heavy metals is something that I would want to take a look at. So in that sense, yeah, it's very rarely the case that somebody provides me with some feedback of that type and I can instantly swipe my pen into a tick shape and we decide, right, we know how things are going to be sold. But often it tells us we've now got a lever. We now know that within this segment of this very, very complex interrelated thing we call the human metabolism, we now know that this is going to yield us some major gains. And it's just a case of, well, what is uh, the, the exact mechanism? And often, yeah, well, I'll then go scurrying through their prior test results, which will frame things very clearly and squarely. Other times we need to do either a lab test or a, a frontline trial because often frontline trials are going to tell us what's what. Okay, trial this. Trial this molybdenum, and that will tell us a lot about your uh, sulfur processing and, and sulfite relationships. So, yeah, I wish that I could, uh, yeah, break it down into something that's so that's more black and white. And that is indeed the the biggest problem that I've wrestled with over the years: how to convey what <laughs> what is required to take somebody from point A to B. The concepts are simple; the details are not. When you refer to the sulfur, what what are you referring to? Are we finding that in foods? In where are we ingesting that yeah. through? So the uh, sulfites, as an example, uh, of a food chemical, but it can also be uh, formed inside the body. So sulfites, you'll most likely find them as preservatives. Um, so maybe uh, dried raisins, um, coconut chips. They'd be perfect examples of things that will be preserved with sulfites. Wine is often um, a source of sulfites, although it's fair to say that the level at the time of consumption may well not be the same as uh, at the point of production. Uh, but we're splitting hairs already. Mm -hmm. um, in any case, so these sulfites often, yeah, people will find that there's certain foods that they can consume and then they will get a characteristic um, symptom as a consequence of that. Um, but equally, people can end up forming sulfites very easily um, for example, uh, yeah, those, those gut disturbances that I mentioned that forms hydrogen sulfide, that can modify a lot of the activity in the sulfur pathways. And whilst it doesn't automatically have to result in formation of sulfites, um, it very easily uh, can do uh, equally if people are under lots of oxidative stress. Well, that's cool because the body will produce more of its antioxidant glutathione, a sulfurous compound. Um, to put it more into my words, um, the body will increase activity in the transulfation pathway, which is all good and well. But what if those enzymes that are designed to take 
those additional sulfur compounds and turn them into glutathione? What if they can't keep up? Where will those increased sulfurous compounds end up? Sulfites is one of those end points which can wreak havoc. Okay, but what you've just said is like five scientific words there that you're going, okay, now like in in the layman's terms, am I consuming what to feel what? Am I taking something out to feel that this will come back? You know, like sometimes Mm -hmm. I like people are so frustrated and they're so they're desperate. And so while they feel so much is wrong, like what are the is it they're asking or the, these foods, yes, no, take them out. This, mm-hmm. take them out. If I, I want to have the energy to work out, but I can't. But if I do this, then can I go do something active? Like, mm-hmm. did you, do you sense my, where no, I feel No, I do. And yeah. I am acutely aware of my shortcomings in delivering a <laughs> message that is both accurate and understandable. Because that hugely influences uh, people's outcomes because I categorically recognize that often someone's been ill for decades. It's clear there's a lot of complexity in the metabolic problems they're facing. Consequently, normal approaches aren't going to be sufficient. They're not going to cut it. The protocol that I eventually end up constructing for them is going to be complex. And not only that, it's predicated on removing the obstacles that stop them from responding to the thing that's going to actually make the difference. In other words, so much time and focus and emotional resources and money that's actually focused on preparing them removing deep lying imbalances so that they can now respond to something that previously they didn't. And I'm so painfully aware that I'm asking people to undertake these changes and uh, introduce this support and provide me with the data that I ask them to collect along the way. And they may well not be ripe for seeing that change for another couple of rounds. That could easily be three months from now. That's that's an eternity when each and every day is so tough to get through. Um, and so, yeah, I I am very well aware that, you know, on one hand, I, I know it's difficult <laughs> to actually break it down, but I'm also aware that, yes, that is the one thing I wrestle with most, how can I make this simple to understand? Because asking someone to go through all that whilst they don't actually understand why is asking them to do so on my say so, because I think it's a good idea. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm keen to try and uh, share the concepts because I do feel like people resonate with that because it is so difficult to, to, to A, tell somebody, well, this is what your protocol is going to look like in two months' time once we've gathered your feedback. Um, but, yeah, most of the things will truly resonate once people see a change and mm-hmm. once they brought in the B1 that they were short in 
and they've undertaken the shift in their, their, their dietary intake. So we temporarily do avoid those things that flare up their gut and induce this sustained, ridiculous inflammatory response. And then we've also tactically added certain herbs that bind certain inflammatory compounds and, and, and break inflammatory cycles and suddenly they're sleeping more they're they're healing more they're actually now got more resources to give to that and that opens up our our opportunities to now intervene in ways that are a little bit more testing that call for more resources but hey now they have those resources to actually tolerate the intervention they need um so i think that a lot of people who've struggled for a long time will resonate with those concepts um but yeah i i will happily hold my hands up and say (laughs) i am entirely dissatisfied with my ability to break it down further without making people go cross-eyed and that is something i am working on no well I, I think for those that understand it is that it, your body might not be working to something right now, but if you're able to tweak one thing and it opens up the gateway and it's like this domino effect, I think that's that's essentially so yes. much a part of it is this domino effect that it's finding that one barrier point to actually start the whole process. The one thing that I know because uh, we had kind of gone back and forth and I want to get into it, I want to just get your take right now on zinc because it was an article you sent, sent me that mm-hmm. it was really quite interesting. And so I, I just, and I think people are familiar, but can you do you have like two seconds as I'm looking at the time just to kind of break down your thoughts on on that? And well, why I do. I have two topic. seconds and those that will follow. Um, and so, yeah, so zinc has got a huge swathe of focus right now for obvious reasons. It has very well characterized impacts on the immune function. It's been shown on a multiple range of studies to have quite spectacular effects in improving in uh, resilience to upper respiratory tract infections. So naturally, it's become a bit of a golden child of the uh, uh, of the current situation, certainly in my sphere. Now, my concern is that if individuals don't have good cortisol output, well, cortisol is hugely important for all of those things that I mentioned earlier, but equally, it regulates the way that zinc moves and the levels of zinc in certain cells, and this is key. There, there's this myth that there are no side effects of zinc unless it compromises your copper absorption. So as long as you take a bit of copper with it, you're all good. My contention with that is there are a lot of people that I see who don't get on well with zinc and it wrecks their sleep. It makes them anxious. It increases their skin issues. Their gut isn't quite the same. And this is because zinc's heavily involved in immune function. And if it's not regulated well, then it can actually end up driving immune function and immune activity, aka inflammation, to levels that it's no longer helpful or adaptive. Um, And that's why uh, it's a case of I put the article out just to highlight why that might be going on and in who that that relates to. Because I want to be clear, the vast majority of people are going to benefit from taking zinc. But there is a sizable minority who won't. Um, And yes, in times like these, I really worry that what if they're doing things because this weight of anxiety has been unleashed across across the population at large that, you know, 
what what do humans do in anxiety? We take action. We got to do something, right? Um, and this clearly is proven. And the fact that now their sleep is worse, and that actually all of those symptoms are starting to play up. I just want to um, make sure that people have a counterpoint that can provide them with clarity if that indeed does apply to them. Is think hidden in things that we might not know it's hidden in? Well, um, it's definitely found in, in a whole load of food because it's in decent quantities in all animal produce. So meats especially. I mean, oysters are, are very well regarded as the premium source of zinc. Not that most people eat oysters on a regular basis. Um, but yeah, so seafoods, meats, those are where you'd expect to see the richest sources of zinc. You will find it in certain foods, for example, um, sunflower seeds um, and, and other uh, nuts and seeds. You'll find some zinc in there, although it must be uh, pointed out that plant foods of that type tend to have some anti-nutrients that substantially lowers the absorption of zinc um so yeah most people in the western world do get a decent amount of zinc and then it's just for some so just really quickly the benefits would be so i don't want to leave people on a panic okay mode, yes yeah let's let's There's, not panic anyway yeah. <laughs> um, so the benefits of zinc are primarily is that it increases the capacity of key immune cells that are tasked with responding to infections. And it equally uh, inhibits the entry of, of viral particles into cells, the combined effect of which has dramatic increases um, in people's resistance to viral infection. Um, and it's worth pointing out that there are studies that uh, go back to as far as the 80s, which show just spectacular drops in the incidence of respiratory tract infections when you supplement with zinc. However, they have only seen those spectacular outcomes in countries um, that are very well known to survive on inadequate diets very low zinc diets and so we haven't seen the same uh, benefits for zinc in western populations there have been benefits especially in using zinc acetate lozenges to supersaturate the zinc ions in and around the respiratory tract that's one method that chris master john on his website has, has done an excellent job of explaining why that that works for people to boost their immune systems above uh, baseline levels at key times However, it's also fair to say that systemic zinc, zinc supplement just through oral supplements, I'm not expecting it to do that much for people who already eat a diet mm. with decent levels of zinc. And for anybody eating regular animal produce and who has reasonable digestion of those nutrients, I wouldn't expect them to be candidates for major improvements. I love how you put in there, you know, respectable digestion. And I think that's where a lot of people fall into the trap is that they have no idea that their digestive system is actually not to their benefit and is not working adequately. And therefore, the entire, as we were talking about, the domino effect just continues. Whoa, Can I? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, you're based out of London. We've got a big Canadian audience here. Is this uh, this acid test? Is this available 
to most people? Can we have access to it? I mean, I know there's always the outreach that people can connect with you, but is mm-hmm. this something that's more like, is it a, as available with other health practitioners, with naturopaths, with anything along those lines? Yeah, so I would expect um, most uh, local practitioners, especially the naturopathic ones, to have uh, accounts with one of the labs that do these organic acids tests. So it is a very common test in the naturopathic world. It's not to say that everybody's making use of it, but certainly it's not going to attract uh, a second glance from any practitioner. So I wouldn't expect any difficulty in ordering that locally. Okay, so people can, if they've if they've gone through other protocols that we have talked about and have seen other practitioners and are looking to understand some of these, uh, this cluster of symptoms as well, this would be kind of the first marker is get this test done. Well, exactly. There's no perfect way to go about it, but this categorically has been the most beneficial step um, in the way I do things in the 15 years that I've been doing this. I do think that it's just so vital to get a glimpse beneath the hood before we start throwing out recommendations and i'm sure that a few years from now the this current way of doing things will have thankfully have expired and will no longer uh consider it normal to go to a practitioner who just says okay based on those symptoms here's what i'm going to suggest and it's nice to see there is movement in Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the world in which I operate that that's clear to see not enough but there is movement um, so yeah that's where I see such a, a crucial role for it now we've got definitive yeah. quantitative objective evidence of what is and what is not and what might be going on I think you're definitely on the right track in that and that people are much more open-minded I mean when you're able to have health you know big conferences and and biohackers and that people are interested in the science and the medicine and, you know, the way the body is able to, to function and heal itself. I mean, there's people like you, there's a lot of people out there that are speaking and are spreading a different knowledge base and are, and people I think really appreciate it. Well, it's a really interesting time because as you say, there definitely is the grassroots movement of people seeking knowledge uh, knowledge that they can use to take control and that is changing the landscape in a really positive way mm-hmm. it really is and and I appreciate that and I think uh, our listeners too they're they're investing the time to be able to figure it out and listen to the experts that are out there uh, Mark I really appreciate the time that you had as uh, it's probably past dinner time and it was so nice to hear just like the breeze of the countryside of the English countryside <laughs> going by uh, so I want to be able to say thank you so much that is uh, yet another episode I'm going to have Merrick your website I'll have some articles you've posted some great things I uh, looked out online there's some great talks so people can find a ton more information about you but of course I'll, in- I'll introduce that in the show notes and just want to say to everyone who's listening thanks so much for listening to another episode of living your life with leanne lang please as always share educate let people know that it exists and uh, keep spreading the word about all the amazing guests and the information that we're passing on have a great day it's said that the more time you have to invest the greater the return 
Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.